This is Rugger Matrix America. Welcome to the show, everybody. This is Alex Goff from Goff Rugby Report. Uh, we're back again on Rugger Matrix America, which is brought to you by Eagle Impact Rugby Academy. And it's a show that you can find on iTunes. You can find on GoffRugbyReport.com. That's G-O-F-F, by the way. And uh, on RuggerMatrix.com, where you can also see the Rugger Matrix International Show. This is me. And the other two, well, that's Bruce McLean and Pat Clifton. Uh, they're taking time out of their busy, busy coaching lives uh, to uh, give us some expertise because I'm, I have a feeling they're going to be have more to say about this topic than I do um, today because we're talking pro rugby and pro rugby uh, prospects and things like that. But um, guys, what's up? You got training or a game coming up today, don't you? Yep, training. Yeah. Training on a, on a Wednesday. <laughs> yeah, recording on a Wednesday. Yeah. You, got, you got a Wednesday game, Bruce? But no, not, not for us. Yeah, no, we oh, have you're going to go see a game. No, it's a C game with, our, uh, with a bunch of our freshmen. Okay. So it'll be fun. They, we, they needed a game. So you're, 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 paying, you're giving your, uh, your second side players, your third side players, the time of day? Yeah, yes. I, uh, <laughs> I, uh, I had to, uh, the problem is I'm busy as hell at work and this is driving me crazy, yeah. but I'll live. Yeah, that's true. Used to have a job. That, that, you know, that's the, the, the classic lecture I always used to give to players when I was coaching and, and they weren't dialed in or they were late or anything like that was, was sort of complaining about, you know, taking time from work and, and family to do this. And, uh, um, you know, I got here on time. How about you do the same stuff like that? That's that that's the classic complaint, I guess. When uh, when I was I had to light a fire under people, but uh, uh, you know, lots of people, you know, most people play this game. They're not paid, and most people who coach this game do it on a volunteer basis, and they take a lot of time. They it's not just showing up and saying you run this way and you run that way. The 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 Training plans, the game plans, selections, player evaluations, uh, being able to say uh, when a, somebody comes up to you and says, hey, coach, why am I not playing? Be able to actually tell them why. All of that stuff is on a volunteer basis. But we have what we wanted to talk about are the guys who get paid to do it. And, and I think that – I think you guys would agree – uh, there was a lot of excitement at the idea that uh, um, people would be able to pay, get paid to coach and get paid to train full time and, and play rugby. Um, and we're done. We, we didn't really talk about the pro rugby much during the season, but we are finished with the season. They managed to get it done. And And I guess first on a rugby level, this is the thing where I really feel like you guys have seen more than I have on a rugby level. Was it successful? I mean, yes, it was. It unearthed a couple of guys like Langi Langi, How Piakui. I mean, um, some guys got the more guys got to play in, at a higher level. Um, so we got we got international players from Canada, from New Zealand, from Italy, from the United States, and they all got to play against each other. And and I think that we saw some guys raise their hands. Spike Davis from Ohio. I mean. People in the know or who knew his name before the league started knew what kind of an athlete he was, but we even saw him play even more, and he led the league in, in, in tries. And 
and all that. So that's all great because usually you don't get to you know you don't get to play against an all black or an Italian player or a Canadian player unless you're in the ARC or some kind of test match. So this was an opportunity for a large part of the domestic pool or the potential domestic pool to uh, play against those guys. So it was very um, it was very successful. Uh, now, was the standard of play what everybody wanted it to be? Did it look like super rugby? No, it did not. But it was a higher standard than anything else we had in the United States. And so I think from a, a rugby guys getting on the field and playing at a better standard perspective, yeah, it was it was a success. Uh, I don't know that I 100% agree with that. I agree that they did get to play with some interesting international talent and stuff like that. And then wasn't overly impressed at the level of play. I certainly wasn't impressed at all with the defense. But the you know, as far as they put a, they put games out there every weekend and in the first year that's that's all you can do and, and you know, I mean, but asking from a rugby standpoint, I don't think it was anything different than anything else that we've had over the course of time. That's you know, I don't I don't didn't see you know. So if you, if you could so, compare it, if you could compare it to a good Super League game or a, a you know, really good one, yeah, with like Aji McGinty and yeah, Samuel yeah. Manoa. I mean, I mean when, that, we, when yeah. we had when we had our guys right, and and this was our number one thing to do was was Super League or the the ARP PRP. Uh, I mean, I mean, I, I look at maybe I'm biased or whatever, and maybe I just didn't. Maybe I saw highlights, so I'm seeing the best of what it is. I wasn't even close. Not when they were at their best. Not even close. Not, in, not in, at all. In favor of which direction? The Super League. Super League. Super League. All right. Not, uh, even, not even a doubt. The, the, the big thing that I like is, is the idea that, um, you know, you mentioned Spike Davis, Pat, and I, and I think the idea that somebody like him comes up and people say, well, he needs more time. He needs to play more rugby. He needs to learn the game, but at a high level, not just go play for um, uh, a meh club or go to a Super League club and they look around and say, you know, you're not experienced enough. We'll put you on the B side. So I, th- I think there's a lot of value um, in taking quote unquote high performance potential athletes and getting them rugby. Uh, I did talk to a couple of players, and I'm, I'm uh, Pat. I'm sure you talked to some players um, who who really liked it, simply because they got to play and train all the time, and they had pretty good games. And they feel like you add that into playing for the national team or playing on this USA Selects coming up, you start to you start to build up at least maybe ten plus really, really tough games going on uh, more than people used to. I don't know. I mean, did, are other people saying that, or did they say it was just sort of a, a waste? Uh, the, the players that I talked to loved it. I mean, for the first time in their lives, they were played to, or paid to play rugby, and that was their nine, That was their job. So they did it. Um, you know, they were in full-time daily training environments, which I think it's inarguable that that's what's going to drive us and make us better is full-time daily training environments, and they got to be in that. And um, I think anybody who came in uh, thinking it was going to be run with the uh, professionalism of the NFL, um, then, uh, you know, maybe they were disappointed. But, you know, um, who's the guy? Phil, um, the center uh, and, and back three guy. Phil McKenzie from Canada. He, he wrote something for the Players' Tribune, which the Players' Tribune was started by Derek Jeter, and it's 
where a lot of professional athletes go and write their own stories. It's supposed to be, uh, you know, you take out the nasty, dirty, cheating, lying media, and this is the player's conduit to the, to the fans. And he wrote something that I thought was pretty honest about the pro rugby experience. And um, I think most people who did it enjoyed it and want it to happen again and, uh, and, and hope it lasts as long as it can. Okay, so on that level, fine. You know, they played the games. The games are played. It's probably going to get better. Uh, as an organizational thing, and Pat, you said, you know, they're thinking that it'll be run like the NFL, and it's not. Um, there, was, there, was, there were issues. I think that um, some of the things we heard about was that, for example, you know, you think that a professional team is traveling from one game to another that, oh, you know, it, it's like, like Major League Baseball or the NFL. It's not. Uh, they're looking for cheap flights. Sometimes those flights were like multi-connection flights that it took a while to get back home. Uh, with it playing within California, the expectation was they would take land transportation. Um, you know, it, it sort of sort of modeled almost a little bit more on old-time minor league baseball than than uh, major pro sports because they maybe because they had to save money, maybe unrealistic expectations about what it's like to actually travel and go play a rugby game and go home. Um, what do you, what are you guys hearing about that kind of thing? I think you're spot on. I mean, I don't think it's that much different than, I mean, like I coach rugby at a varsity program in a small college and our football team travels the same way as our rugby team travels the same way as our basketball team. You get in a van, you drive a lot of hours and then you drive back. So I think people don't, like, don't realize what it's like to be a varsity student athlete for most people, right? Not everybody's hopping onto T Boone Pickens jet and flying from Stillwater to Berkeley and back. Um, and that's the same with, with the professional sports. I mean, does your local, if you live in a big market or, you know, there's a good chance that there's some kind of minor league hockey or baseball team or, or soccer team in your town, whether it's indoor or whatever, you know, they're not getting on private jets and flying around. So I, I've heard those things. I think the biggest one, which we'll get to is, is is payment. Yep. Paycheck, paychecks coming on time. Everybody, you know, did everybody get paid when they were supposed to? Was that efficient? Could they, you know, if you had to, if you, you know, if you wanted to auto draft your your electric bill and your phone bill and and your car payment out of your out of your uh, account at the third of every month or set it up to be on auto pay, could you count on your pro rugby check to be in on time to in order to do that? And um, I think the answer was no, and, and that was definitely a complaint. Um, by the players, but being paid late, I guess, is being not paid, which is what we've been doing as domestic rugby players forever. So, I, well, I I think there's a difference, right? So, uh, yeah, player players and coaches weren't paid on time. That is, uh, you know, what is it, first and fifteenth of the month? Uh, the guy who runs the league started the league. Doug Schoeninger actually is uh, talking to you, Pat. Um, you got some great audio from him discussing this, and he acknowledges that um, they didn't pay on time. So um, first, uh, let's hear what he has to say about it. Uh, and this is uh, Doug Schoeninger, head of uh, Pro Rugby North America, talking with Pat. I've known a lot of the guys in the league, players, coaches, for years and years, right? So um, I talked to a lot of them. 
I hear stories of the Ohio fence hasn't been paid for. They're going to come take it away. An Ohio coach has to put his personal credit card down. The league's car getting denied when they're going to buy dinners. Yeah. Things like this. And I'll tell you why. They try to, so the fence has been 100% paid for. It was put up with 100% paid for. So that's a move. The stands are paid per their thing. You know, there's always two sides to a story, right? Sure. You know, we all have issues with people that bill us that aren't cracked. No, well, some of those are operational issues. We have a $20,000 limit on a credit card that all the coaches use. No one's supposed to charge anything to go to the meal. Someone charged $10,000. I check it every two days. I didn't check it. You know, things like that happen. These are immaterial. Those are the biggest complaints. I'm pretty happy. Those okay. are my, you're always going to have an issue with stuff like that. There are no financial issues. Every player that should be paid has been paid. There's been some issues with certain trainers and stuff like that. But there's issues in every business. Employers not always wrong. Okay. I think I don't know what. I mean, I'm assuming if there were better, worse stories out there, I would have heard them. And I haven't heard of it. I've just heard about, like, for example, the Sacramento training facility not being paid. And so now they're not stocking the toilet paper in the bathrooms. And so now they're having to go get their own toilet paper. Okay. I don't know anything about that. It's the first I've heard. Um, a lot of people like to communicate through the media, which is unfortunate. Uh, the venue, uh, the office is completely paid for. The training facility is paid for. The gym is completely paid for. There was the first month of uh, every venue, every office sends me a bill. They didn't send me a bill. Didn't get paid. They call. I said, oh my God, you didn't send me a bill. I said, we don't send bills. I said, okay, here. These are not issues as far as I'm concerned. It's not a, we it's don't noise. have money issue. It's a growing pain operational issue. Well, we're just, you know, it's doing it. You know, I mean, well, okay, one of the things I learned was interesting. This is one of the most interesting I've learned. Is originally one, in terms of structures, because we're a single entity, right? So lead and the teams are owned by one entity. I thought the biggest challenge would be to give local flavor to every team, right? I mean, you usually get that from a local ownership. Mm-hmm. You don't have local ownership. What's going on? Well, I'm not concerned anymore because <laughs> the teams are very autonomous. Yes. Right? Which is a good thing. Next year, operational. I, I had thought we would actually operate more as a league. And this isn't a criticism. This is probably, ultimately, a good the problem. Something I just misinterpreted, right? Or misplanned for Next year, we have to have much more local management on the team level. So a lot of these small things don't happen. Like, all five teams should not be sharing one credit card. Right. 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 Because where's the control? Everyone should have their own credit card. You know, when we when I planned it on paper, it was really like all the coaches were almost assistant coaches to each other. Sounds ridiculous now, doesn't it? <laughs> and, um, but I guess, you know, I was altruistic. And... You know, I think everyone's been friendly, but I think, in fact, they want to win, right? And that's good. So my problem of local flavor is completely out the door. The problem operationally got worse. Very used to fix next year. You know, Steve always heart me. you got to fix it this year. I'm like, by the time I fix it, the season's over. Let's not even focus on fixing it. We'll just get through it. If nothing's horrible. We'll get through it. We'll get a couple of little stories like this. That this one hasn't been paid. Or this one's but it's fine. You know, that's not important. What's important is the games happen, they're safe, the players are developing, you know, and it's all good, right? But outwardly, we look good. Internally, my desk is a mess. Next year, I'm used to a clean desk, so I'm not even, I'm buried alive. It's okay. So that was Doug Schoeninger uh, with Pat Clifton. It was, it was a good interview by Pat. Uh, 
Uh, a couple of things about it, though. You know, I did edit it a little bit right in the middle of talking about sort of the uncomfortable things. He turns around, starts talking to a couple of coaches, doing some glad handing and things like that. I thought that sort of diverted things a little bit, but he did come back to it, did talk about it uh, um, a little Idiot. bit. So basically, Schoeninger's response has mostly been the things you say aren't paid were actually paid, uh, that – uh, part of it is the way he's billed or the way he has a relationship with an organization. And, um, you know, there's really not a problem. Yeah, I mean, he decided, he made the decision, remember he's the, the sole proprietor of the league, to not hire somebody in the back office right away to do these sorts of things. And uh, so he was, ended up putting in the, the payroll every two weeks himself. And sometimes it got done quicker than others and, and that resulted in people getting paid late. Um, and that didn't just go away, though, right? So I guess he did hire a bookkeeper, he said, um, at one point in the season, um, well, into the season after it had started. Um, but the, the late payment thing kept kind of going. There have been late payments um, even into the off season. So um, he acknowledged that, but he also seemed to kind of um, seem didn't think it was that big of a deal, um, some of those uh, organizational issues. And I know him and Steve Lewis, um, uh, who he hired to run the league, um, from the rugby perspective, as the director of rugby, uh, right, butted heads on some of that stuff. Steve wanted that stuff fixed right away. And Doug said, he said verbatim, you know, by the time we fix it, the season will be over. So we'll just fight through the season and we'll fix it for next year. So, well, as you mentioned, the problem with this is not so much. You know, oh, oh, well, they got paid eventually. We'll work through it. But we're talking about let, we're talking about players who are p- not being paid very much money. So little, in fact, for some of them that pretty much their first paycheck of the of the month they get two paychecks. Their first paycheck of the month goes to rent. If you're late on the rent because your your payment is late. Then you've got a problem. So, so when we say, well, it's the same, you know, same as it always has been. It's essentially like not, you know, playing for free. Yeah, but if you're depending on it suddenly, somebody tells you, depend on this, you're going to get a hundred bucks next week, and then you don't get it. You are depending on that, and 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 if you're right, if if, if you get dinged for being late on a bill because your payment was late, that really affects you. And we're not talking about six figure. Athletes, we're talking about guys making, uh, you know, close to minimum wage. Well, maybe not that. No, close close to the new minimum wage. How about that? That everyone. It's certainly worth noting that uh, almost all of these. I mean, not all, not everyone. There were tier two guys and tier three local guys, but for the majority of players in the league, they had to relocate to do this, right? So they had to pick up, move somewhere, sign a new lease, and drop their old job. There were tier three players. And in certain cities, like, you know, Denver had a lot of local guys, but a lot of guys had to pack up and move to, like, there weren't, you think all those guys are just sitting in Columbus, Ohio, waiting to play rugby? No, they had to drop what they were doing, whatever their other revenue streams were. Tough to hold another job while you're doing this. So, yeah, you're without a doubt, for all those players, it was a big deal. And I think that uh, Doug um, seemed to kind of sweep under the rug as though it wasn't. He, he, didn't, he didn't seem as concerned about it. Uh, Bruce, you got anything to add to this? I mean, look, the financial issues that happen as a league starts, it, it happened in the NFL, it happened in Major League Baseball, it happens in in every other 
kind of league and, and you know, the travel arrangements and all that. That I, it, 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 He made it seem, though, at least in the lead-up, that he had X amount of millions of dollars. So there should have been money in the accounts and had those, and those things happen relatively easily. You know, most people would... I'm sure he probably did use a payroll firm unless he was paying guys in a 1099. Um, and even so, he might have wanted to use a payroll firm to to do his payroll so that he could do the taxes and everything because it was a multi-state entity. And so I would imagine that some of that could be a little bit complicated. So you'd go through a payroll firm. And if he did go through a payroll firm, it's a matter of just, especially when they're on a salary and they're not being paid hourly, that it's a matter of just clicking and sending the payroll. So if he went through a payroll firm, his excuse is nonsense. If he did it himself, then his excuse is legitimate. And, and it, but it, it's very strange that he would do it himself. Even, uh, even but, on, but you, you set yourself up for all that extra work. Well, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's doing a it ton yourself. of extra work as opposed to, like, a dollar a paycheck. So you're looking at, like, you know, I mean, whatever. I, I don't, I don't know. I'm not necessarily, even if he did it on QuickBooks or something, they have a payroll service kind of involved in QuickBooks. But he, I, again, I, I'm not exactly sure how he, how he went about doing it. I never saw anyone's payroll checks, but... If he did it himself, then hey, you know, it takes a long time to write a bunch of checks, and it, and it can be a bit of a pain in the ass. Um, if he did it on a payroll service, then it then his excuse is not valid, and it, and there's really no excuse anyway, just because the guys are on a contract, and you said you had all the millions of dollars, so it you know what's the difference between holding something for three days. It, you know what I mean? It's not, so I, I'm, I'm not necessarily, I think that there's, you know, side A, side B, and the truth. And, and the truth is not what we're getting, but his, but his, his things about what it's like to start a new league are true. So in all good lies is an element of truth. That's every good liar has. They focus on the truthful parts and they, but the big stuff they don't necessarily bring forward. So that's just, it's all right. So, so we we talked about this when this started was whether this would be viable, and and I think the the number we came up with to run a league like this would be minimum six million dollars. That's what I think, and that's mostly from Bruce. But we went over the numbers, and it came out to be about that. Um, it was probably more than that with various complications, things like that. Um, and if you try to run some of these things on a shoestring, try to save twenty bucks here, twenty bucks there, um, you're going to drive yourself crazy. Which I think, um, and I don't know this, but maybe maybe that's human nature to try and check and and. And, and think about it every time there's a, a check goes out. I've dealt with small businesses. And in fact, Pat, you and I, and maybe I can speak to this better because I don't work for your employer anymore. But uh, United World Sports was very much like this. That uh, um, 
throwing uh, a little hissy fit over a couple of hundred bucks. In fact, Pat, you know what I'm talking about when I say that the boss of United World Sports threw a hissy fit over a hundred dollars in an organization that was spending and bringing in millions. So people people do that. Um, and 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 those of you who've been employed by these organizations, you you find it ridiculous to do that. You you're you're seeing you, usually what you're doing is you're seeing big waste somewhere. Um, and United World Sports spending six figures on musical acts for the CRC would be an example. Um, if you want to be a, a music promoter, go be a music promoter. Um, but we, we see that in any kind of business we talk about. We see big waste. We see uh, the guys on top behaving in a way that's, you know, just spending a little bit lavishly on something um, or even spending on you, right? Um, you get You have some kind of office party. And the boss comes in and says, drinks for everybody and loaded potato skins for everybody. And we're supposed to be thankful for that. And you say, well, you chewed me out over a $50 uh, expense bill last week. So I would rather you have not yelled at me and then I have to pay for my own potato skins. Um, so it, it's, sort of, it's sort of normal on this thing. I, I did notice uh, on a team level, there were some team issues in pro rugby uh, because the league itself had one credit card. Well, it's actually, I think it was a debit card. Um, and so sometimes it was difficult to, to manage that and um, be on top of, you know, if, if, if you're charging something, team A and team B is charging something and team C is charged something earlier in the day, you can max that thing out really, really fast. Um, one of the teams decided to take care of their own finances internally um, and it worked out more easily for them. And I think going forward for any league, correct me if I'm wrong, really, I mean, you, you need, you need, you kind of need owners. You kind of need some kind of stakeholder who perhaps runs one team rather than somebody looking over the entire league. I, I don't, I think a, it depends on how everyone runs their business, but a lot of people, when they have a business, do get, they do say things over minutiae, and it's just the way it goes. It just tends to be the way, like, my accountant will, you know, will be sitting there at X hundreds of dollars an hour talking about, you know, 50 bucks, like, who cares? And then, you know, but, and then I'll have, you know, like one of my brothers will, who I'm partners with would be, you know, talking about data over it. But it, but if you don't have someone looking at that stuff, then pennies become dollars, dollars become hundreds of dollars, hundreds become thousands, thousands become hundreds of thousands, or tens of thousands. And it does tend to add up and it can get out of hand. So I, I understand maybe where they're coming from on that end. And so you do need someone who looks at things in that manner. And it's, it's just the reality of life. If you don't, you know, people have unlimited wants and especially if they're spending someone else's money, it's pretty easy to just let it go. Let it get crazy. When you're spending your own money or other people are spending your money, then 
you know, that people can tend to be a little bit more tight-fisted about what the hell does he think? You know, if, if it's my money and I want to spend it on a, on a big dinner, that's great. That's my choice. But if it's my money and you want to spend it on a big dinner, like, well, wait a second, bro. Did you ask me about that? And, and that's, so I, I think that I understand that in terms of that, I know where you're getting at there, but I definitely understand. And sometimes in order to send a message, you got to kind of complain about little nonsense. There was a, oddly, it was the CEO of Bear Stearns, which went under, but it, years ago, my friend said that he was, he was talking about horizontals and shutting off the horizontal stuff. Like just turning the power off on the printer was a horizontal power instead of the, the light off would be a vertical and like turning your computer off, turning all those things off would save so much money in just power usage, you know, nonsense again, but it's just one of those things. That's sometimes how people think. And does it always work? Sometimes you're penny wise and pound foolish. Well, yeah, but you, you kind of wish some people would not think that way. Um, but you know, I, I guess the thing is, it's it is common enough that maybe it shouldn't be a surprise. Well, you'd wanna, you want you want people to not think that way, but you also don't want people to take advantage. So, like it, the same thing is, you're not the type of person who takes advantage, nor is Pat. But there are people who do take advantage, and there are people who do walk. So, like, and and you know what? They always get away with it. They always get away with it, and it's the people who try to be reasonable yeah. who get yelled at. Because they know it's just the, it's just the way. It's, because they know that you'll take it, and that's it. And it's, it's almost like you know the coach who yells at the good guy to get the other guy to hear him. And you know the the there's the old there's the old story of uh, it's in the movie uh, Eight Men Out where uh, the. Chicago then uh, became to be known the Chicago Black Sox uh, who threw the 1919 World Series. And the scene in the movie is actually factually inaccurate. Um, Eddie Seacott goes in to try to get his bonus for winning 30 games. And the uh, um, the owner tells him, well, you only won 29. And they said, but you held me out from that um, that one game. You basically, you didn't start me. So I could have won 30, but you did it to avoid the bonus. Um, and you know, th- there's, some, there's some indication that that didn't necessarily happen. I don't know. But um, the, those kinds of stories are pretty common in old-time baseball and football and things like that. And, and I guess the question is, wh- is that unreasonable? If you've got um, your pennant, in this case, if you've got the pennant sewn up w- early in – in September, why don't you rest your top starter? And maybe it's financial sense and also baseball sense to avoid having uh, start again and, and win 30 games. So it depends on how you look at it. Eddie Seacott, kind of mad, ends up be, uh, being part of the group that throws the World Series. Uh, people who are connected with the team, uh, investors, things like that, might look at it and say that was a smart financial decision um i support it and i don't know how fans would think of it one way or the other but it's it in one sense it's a smart move in another sense it's it's a jerk move 
Well, when you, it's like the same thing when you're doing, when you're in the entertainment industry, which, which is what sports is. And they, and, and football is a classic example because most, most season ticket holders now have to buy 10 tickets to two of them with preseason. So basically 20% of your purchases for football tickets are wasted. Um, just because you're not getting any entertainment value out of it. And then, so if they decide to sit a player or players or play a bench team in the final game and possibly the final two of their home games, then you're basically getting 30% of your, of your season tickets have been wasted. And if it's two games, it's 40%. And, and so that's unfair to the fan. You know, that would be like, yeah, we're going to show you this movie, but we're going to cut out all the scenes of the major star. And so it's like, you know, you can see The Godfather, except, you know, you're not going to see anything with Pacino and uh, and uh, what the hell's his name? Oh, the, the old man, right, and, yeah. you know, and... and uh, Marlon Brando. Yeah, Marlon yeah. Brando and then the James Caan. So like, you're not going to get to see any of that. So and that's look. Every league is going to have its growing pains, and this one is no is no different. And I, I just look. It financially wasn't viable. We discussed that already, and you know, in the first year, it basically proved out to be financially not viable. In most cases, the, the crowds were not large, and, and the and they and probably not a lot of them were full-on paying customers. So it's difficult. And and whether or not they go in for year two, you know, that's... In the event that there were several million lost, which I would imagine there were, then, you know, it's difficult to lose several million again. And unless you know that there's going to be something up the pipe. And I I, I don't think... There's got to be a payoff... If, I mean, if is it l- selling the league after three years to someone else who then spends well, enough that, money it to, could, it could, it to could be selling the, the initial investment? Some, it could uh, be selling the league. I mean, I don't know. Does the rugby though. channel, uh, do they invest in the league? I, I don't know if they do or not. I don't really know enough about it, you know, the internal financial workings. And nor is that really anybody's business just because it's a private company. You know, it's not it, – it is – a private company with a sole proprietor and, or I'm sure it's an LLC. And a lot of times in LLC, how it'll work is they, they kind of want to have two owners instead of one. So like maybe his wife owns like one or 2%. Usually they do it at 98 and two. So his wife may own 2% of the company. Essentially he's a sole proprietor. He may have a, a partner that's a, a completely very, very minuscule. And that's, just because um, sole sole owner LLCs uh, aren't always looked upon um, favorably by the IRS, so there could be a second owner, but essentially there's not. Um, from but that's that's a uh, so the, like that situation is just, you can't. Even if you have $50 million and you lose five, well, that's 10% of your money. You lose five again, and then you lost, you know, you're down uh, $40 million. And 
it doesn't, you know, hey, look, I'd like to have the problem of having 40 million bucks, but if you have $40 million and you just lost 10, like, you have to have a 25% uh, investment strategy to get that back, just to get back to break even. Yes. Because 40 times 25% is 10 million, that gets you to 50, which gets you at break even. So, it, and you don't get $50 million by being a moron. Not, you can't be a complete moron with your money. So, I'm sure that they're really looking at, and I'm just throwing that number out, whatever it is, 50, 30, 100, who knows what it is. But no matter what it is, nobody likes to lose 5 million bucks. Or 3 million, or 4 million. Nobody. All right. Speaking speaking of being concerned about losing money or losing, say, uh, um, losing market share, one of the things that come up related to pro rugby is the rumors and discussion about whether the Pro 12 uh, from uh, overseas, the Pro 12 being basically the um, the Irish, Scottish, Welsh Pro League with an Italian team in there because that's what you do, um, looking to get a franchise in the United States. At the same time, uh, there's yet again news about the idea that Super Rugby is thinking about the United States. Um, the distances involved in putting a Super Rugby team uh, in the Western Hemisphere uh, are staggering, but you know the distances are already staggering in Super Rugby, so what the hell, let's just uh, destroy everybody's circadian rhythms to go play. Uh, Doug Schoeninger uh, has, uh, came out very quickly to say that uh, no, a, a Pro 12 team in the United States would hurt him and go against his agreement uh, with USA Rugby. I, I actually don't agree with that because we're talking about a single team at a higher level. I think it would help Pro Rugby, but um, it speaks to how uh, Schoeninger is looking at things that he says it would be a bad thing. Uh, and then we got this this press release statement from Dan Payne, the new... Uh, CEO of um, USA Rugby, and 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 he talked about. I don't know, uh, Bruce. You and I disagree on the tone of this, um, but I kind of felt like he was tiptoeing a, a line down the middle and saying, "We love you, Pro Rugby. Oh, wait, anybody who wants to put a a major pro franchise in the United States, we're not against that. But we love you, Pro Rugby, and." Uh, you know, I think both of you guys have probably better insights than I about that position and what's happening there. So maybe I should shut up and maybe you guys should talk. Well, I mean, I, I think you, you kind of hit the nail on the head. I mean, everybody's glad that Pro Rugby's here, including Dan Payne. Um, is everybody glad about and happy about the way in which it was pulled off and the way and what it looks like and how it was executed? No. Uh, everybody, I think, well, not everybody, but I, I think a lot of people would love to see a Pro 12 franchise in the United States. And I think that's an opportunity that anybody who's smart is at least going to sit down and listen to the people who want to tell them about that opportunity. You'd be a fool to not at least listen to what's out there. Um, so, yeah, I mean, he's playing one hand, but he might have an eye on the, on the, uh, the draw pile, too, and I don't think that there's anything wrong with that. Um, but, look, I, I don't think – I'm sure contractually he owed um, – or USA Rugby, not he, he didn't ink the sanctioning agreement with uh, 
pro rugby. That was done before he got there. But I'm sure USA Rugby, at some contractual level, owed um, some kind of statement to show their support um, for pro rugby. Um, but supporting pro rugby does not mean denouncing any other potential possibility out there. Uh, the way I read it, it was yeah. the troubling part of the way I read it, is that it has to, like, if you wanted to have a pro franchise, whether it's Super Rugby, Pro 12, or whatever league it was, um, that you had to work through the the Pro Rugby USA thing. And if I were an owner and they were like, oh, yeah, you got to be able to be that guy, stick this, I'm done. Like, you're not holding out. Like, it, look, we're coming to you and we're offering an opportunity. I'm not working. I would be like, sort that out now. You sort it out. But we're not coming. I'm not sorting it out. I'm not getting in the middle of these negotiations. Deal with it. If you want us, then you'll deal with it. And that's it. Look, I that's think what pro I would might be as desperate as we are for pro. For the pro 12, I mean, rather. Pro 12 is desperate. They're in dire straits. They're There's no question. They need us. Pat, every, every, pro rugby friend, every pro rugby thing out there is in dire straits. Nobody's making money. It, it, like rugby isn't. If if you were to take like major sports, soccer is where the money is, and like rugby is is, is a pittance. It's it's a spoonful out of a bucket full of sand in in the sporting world. Rugby isn't a big money thing, and all these people who think that rugby is a big money thing and there's big money in rugby happens to be a game that was supported by wealthy people, played by wealthy people, very wealthy people, and incredibly successful in their lives. And because they love it, they've basically given money to it. They haven't made anything out of this. I understand, Bruce. I'm just saying, of the pro leagues in Europe, the Pro 12, if you want to look at their bank account, is going to be a little smaller than England and France. And they're, they're desperate. Is. England and France have the ability to go out and sign, um, you know, uh, I can't remember the kid's name, Sam Burgess. And they can go and sign yeah. Dan Carter. And those pro, that's their key to success, they think. The Pro 12 can't do that. Their key to success is expansion. Yeah. And Italy, Italian expansion ain't working. The only other place that could be their saving grace and be the, the bucket that bails the water out of the ship would be expansion in the United States market. I'm just saying that Pro 12, I, I think USA Rugby has more leverage in this uh, in dealing with the Pro 12 yeah. than, than what your initial but, remarks maybe indicated. And, and, uh, I, yeah, you know, pe- pe- people got to, you know, people who think that uh, professional rugby in rugby uh, countries is a big, big deal have um, got to remember that it wasn't that long ago that there was only one team in the premiership that was getting over 10,000 a game. Um, There's an article here written by Hendrik Cronje uh, for the City Press in July this year saying, calls for a series format shakeup in Super Rugby come uh, after uh, teams are seen playing in front of 50% capacity stadiums. Uh, 
the the Nelson Mandela Stadium in the Bay was was only fifteen one five percent full during Super Rugby matches, with an average of six thousand nine hundred fourteen spectators tallied per match. You know, that's I mean, that's just that's scary low. The reason that these leagues exist, and you, you talk about money being just sort of funneled to it, Bruce. That's true, and then you also have like the international rugby. And the money from that, from those governing bodies, also supporting uh, some of these pro leagues, and it's and it's selling out Twickenham or or you know Murrayfield or Eden Park or something like that that pays for this, and it's not in that scheme, it's not that much money. Well, it's one of the reasons that the I wasn't saying about USA Rugby have a is that they don't want to deal with pro rugby. I don't think that they want to deal with another entity. If an owner came in, these teams are owned by people. If they came in and they were going to have an, like they were going to have a team or a franchise, whatever it may be, then they would want to just have control of that franchise, and that's it. They're not looking to rescue rugby in America. It, it, that's it, it's not what they want to do. That's not their job. Their job is to go in and try to win a competition. And make money if they can. Not that they will, but to make money if they can. And chances are they can't. Um, but the uh, so that was what, that was kind of what I meant there. It wasn't anything about USA Rugby at all in any in any way. It was more about having to deal with other stuff as a pro franchise, you're trying to get your stuff off the ground and trying to work. I'm not working through another entity. If USA Rugby doesn't want to have a pro 12 franchise or whatever in, and we have to work through that, we don't want to be here. And I understand that the pro 12 isn't doing well and that they certainly can, can be in a spot where they may need money but we're not in a spot to necessarily give it much money. Nobody here has, and we've had some major, major, fine, you know, people who have serious money, uh, people who have serious money that have been involved in, in rugby in America. Serious money, like big, big. And they haven't given a nickel. They haven't done anything. This is true. So it's not. It's, it's, this is true. They don't see. They don't see the value. Of course, because there is uh, no value in it. Yeah. That's a couple of things. A couple of things to bolster that argument. First of all, if we're talking about a Pro 12 team, you know, what are they? So a Pro 12 team, I guess, is playing. Uh, 11 games at home so you know if they expand it out make it pro 14 or whatever it is play 13 games at home 13 games in the united states and and it's likely it's going to be uh changed a little bit and they're going to probably play a couple in ireland or in iceland i don't know um that's not really super appealing you know yeah it's it's stepping your foot into the the grand united states sports entertainment market but it's not much uh the pro 12 uh, 2014-15 season, they averaged less than 9,000 fans a game. Really, really sobering for you. If you're thinking about how professional rugby uh, draws fans, in Australia, 
This is for uh, 2015, 2014, 2015 area. In Australia, the super rugby teams average just under 17,000 a game. The soccer, the pro soccer league in Australia averaged 13,000. And, and nobody is arguing that Australia is a soccer nation. That's how tough it is. That's how crazy it is to talk about. When we talk about soccer, we know soccer attendance worldwide is insanely huge. Um, and in you know places in Britain where entire towns just support their team, it's like you, you can't go anywhere on a Saturday. There's, there are no shops open because they're all at the game. Uh, but even in Australia, where we would think of them much more as a rugby country than we do as a soccer country, they're, they're barely beating out soccer. Rugby Union in Australia is struggling big time. And, you know, rugby league and, and Aussie yeah. rules. Well, the league's not doing that much well. It's, 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 it's Aussie rules. Aussie rules gets way better attendance than anything else. So, yeah. I don't know. Um, but it's, it's, you know, we, we, see, it, we see it in the, the World Cup. Where uh, they hold these, they hold a lot of the games in soccer stadiums because that's they're the bigger stadiums. I for one would love to have a football team in the United States. I think it'd be phenomenal. I I'm a Munster fan. Like if there's a league that I'm going to watch that's in Europe, I'm going to watch Pro 12 over Aviva or France, just because of my uh, dumb uh, allegiance to you know the fact that I've got some Irish in my blood and I. I consider myself a monster fan i would i think it would be a great fit for um for us i think it would you know you have to obviously sort out details about uh, what's your team makeup how many americans are you going to have on the team are they going to uh make an exemption for the american team in terms of um you know who's how they're qualified you know whether they what nation they can qualify for and how many of those qualifiers non-qualifiers you can have and all those sorts of things um, but I think it would be stupendous, and I think it would be great for. I'd be. A, I've always thought that that would be the best toe in the water, the the best true market test to see if we have enough people to to really make a run in a real league. Um, and, and I think pro rugby would or pro twelve would be a great opportunity for that. I think the question that needs to be levied, maybe that we haven't asked, is let's say pro has a second year, let's say pro has a third year. And they continue to have 600, 700, 1,500 fans in every game. Is it doing damage to uh, any potential uh, future leagues by proving that there is no market? A little bit, yeah. I mean, you know, you, you could you could argue, um, you know, we're doing it better this time, things like that. But we saw in soccer that uh, um, there were a few failed attempts, right? And uh, um, <laughs> I guess the idea is if nobody paid attention, so if they fail because nobody paid attention, then maybe nobody will notice that it failed the first time. Yeah, I mean, there, there are failed pro leagues in every sport that makes it, that it ends up existing. So I think, I mean, we're going to find a lot of value. If, if pro is done now, if it's done in a year, if it lasts five years and is done, whatever happens, we're going to find – there will be a lot of uh, valuable lessons learned for the American rugby community. Um, you just hope that if it's going to crash and burn, it doesn't do so much damage um, outside of the rugby community um, that uh, that it's irreparable. 
we we worry about that stuff all the time, and I'm not sure anybody pays attention. Just just so you know, um, you know. So yeah, I mean, there the the league is any any new league is vulnerable, right? Um, I personally think that if a, if a Pro 12 team came to the United States, I think it would help the the Pro a Pro USA league in general. Um, and I and I think there's a lot of enthusiasm among the players, but 600 fans is not going to cut it. Uh, I think wh- what did we talk about, Bruce? I think we talked about 3,000 fans at least paying fans. I think they, you know I think I did a spreadsheet on. It. I think they had to be paying 50 bucks a game too. Yeah, hey, look, the fact that they are getting any fans at all paying anything is probably something of a positive for the league. Mm-hmm. Any, anybody who looks to come here, because people think, all right, so we have a good product and we can do this better. or we, you know, And there's certainly there is a uh, precedent for American sport fans to watch rugby not as consistently as they're hoping, but they definitely is a precedent like with the U.S. Ireland game, Ireland, 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 New Zealand game, and U.S. New Zealand game. Granted, the All Blacks are a different egg. And, and, and that's why, you know, even uh, the fall internationals in November, you know, they, the All Blacks send the full-strength team, and that re- and all the Southern Hemisphere teams do, and that really bolsters the pockets of France, England, Ireland, Scotland, and Wales when they go down to the Southern Hemisphere after, they send not full-strength teams, and and they their, their coffers are not as well protected. So, or as well uh, compensated. So it just it becomes a difficult thing. Tony Smith had talked about this years and years ago to put a pro twelve team. Was, you know, was, he was the first person I saw who had a legitimate idea on doing it and a business plan and and everything else. And now there's been some further discussions with other people, and um, it's moved further in, I don't know that that's viable either. You know, even, I still don't know that it's viable. It costs a lot of money and, you know, the, the amount of money it would probably take is about 70 million and, and that would be a five-year thing. So you're looking at 14 million a year about, something like that. Um, so, like, that's that's a ton of bread to make back in 11 games. Oh, you know, 11 times to make $14 million. It, uh, you need, you know, 10,000 10, seats, 10 times, 100,000 seats, and $100 a game. That's $10 million bucks. You're still a million short. So, you know, you get some sponsors and all that, but that's a lot of jack, man. And, that, and I don't know that we have a fan base that's going to do that. Simoleons, bread, lettuce. <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it, it is a huge investment, and we know people lose money doing it all the time, and it only comes to uh, um, to actually work when you get to the really top level. Um, you know, uh, I'm, I'm looking at a uh, 
table. It's on Wikipedia, so take that for what you want. Um, but according to this Wikipedia page about worldwide uh, attendance figures for domestic professional sports leagues, um, they've only got six that draw 30,000 a game or more worldwide, uh, being the uh, the NFL, the Bundesliga in Germany, the B- English Premier Soccer League, the AFL in Australia, uh, the India Premier Cricket League, and Major League Baseball. And that's it. But then you go down to all the other leagues that are in the 20s, and it's almost all soccer. Because everyone plays soccer. So I don't know. Um, I, I, I think that there are... Uh, I think there are growing pains in any new league. I think that there are spe- growing pains specific to this pro league. And I think, Pat, you make a very good point. If there, um, if there's an issue, a specific issue with this pro league here in the States, um, does that burn a bridge? Does that poison a well? I don't know. But we always worry about that because we care so much about the game. Um, you can be enthusiastic about it and hope it does well and still have your eyes open to problems. And I think that that has to happen. I had, and it certainly certainly has to happen in Colorado uh, with the USA Rugby Home Office in Lafayette. Um, if they are blind to problems within pro rugby that aren't fixed – then they're going to be complicit in making it a problem for uh, for players and for fans. And uh, aren't we all, at the end, just fans? So, so I think that's going to do it for us uh, here in Rugged Matrix America. Uh, don't forget to check us out uh, on iTunes and on RuggedMatrix.com, as well as Golf Rugby Report. Rugged Matrix America is brought to you by Eagle Impact Rugby Academy, which is a an organization that develops top-level uh, rugby skills among young people. So it's you know producing the pros and the stars of tomorrow. And uh, thanks, Pat, for taking the time out of your busy coaching schedule. And thanks, Bruce, for taking the time out of your busy coaching schedule uh, to be here with us on Rugged Matrix America. <laughs>